I think the best way to define what is okay and is not okay in a boundary sense is to ask the question, will it stimulate resentment in me? Getting Discomfortable With Boundaries When I first started researching shame some five years ago, this one word kept coming up in various self-help books that I was reading, and I never understood what it meant. The word was, of course, boundaries. Every time it came up, it was said as if the reader should already know what that was. Of course, we need to work on our boundaries, and obviously it's a boundary problem, and we need strong boundaries. But I was like, well, wait, what is a... I mean, I know what the word boundary means, but in this self-help shame context, what what is a boundary? Is it something I'm supposed to have? How do you do it? Is it it's just some place you don't go, or some place that people don't go on you? Is it a touch thing? Like, you don't, there's areas of your body that you don't touch or something? I just honestly had no idea what anyone meant when they talked about boundaries. So it was clear that whatever this boundary thing was, which apparently was very important to have, I probably didn't have it, considering I had no idea what it was. As I slowly started to piece together what exactly boundaries are, I realized that it was in fact true. I really didn't have a strong sense of boundaries. Not only did I not have a clear sense of what my personal value no-go areas were, but on a deeper, more interpersonal level, I didn't have strong boundaries that delineated the real difference between me and other people. One of my favorite thinkers, Brene Brown, defines boundaries in her book Rising Strong as, and I quote, simply our lists of what's okay and what's not okay. I have to admit, I found this definition kind of simplistic. I was like, really? That's all it is? It's just like what we think is okay and what we don't think is okay? That that just seems too obvious. Like, duh, of course we should know what we think is and is not okay. But I think I interpreted her definition as simplistic because I was viewing it in a moral sense, kind of right versus wrong. But actually, boundaries are more personal and subtle than that. I think the best way to define what is okay and is not okay in a boundary sense is to ask the question, will it stimulate resentment in me? If I allow X, Y, or Z to happen, will I become resentful? So a boundary is really just a line that delineates what is going to literally make us feel comfortable when it happens and what is going to make us feel resentful and unhappy and bitter and judgmental if it happens. So of course it is connected to our morals and it's also connected to our culture and our needs as a person. And it's having a sense of what works for us and what tends to not work for us so that we don't say yes to things that are actually not going to make us feel good and we have a clear understanding of exactly what those things are. Here's another Brene quote from Rising Strong that helps to clarify it. Compassionate people 
ask for what they need. They say no when they need to, and when they say yes, they mean it. They are compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. It's so interesting that she connects compassion with boundaries, because I think a lot of us, myself included, think of a compassionate person as someone who says yes to everything. Any help that someone needs, any support, any favor, any time, no matter what it is, this compassionate person is supposed to be constantly giving of themselves to other people. But of course, that's not a very healthy definition of compassion, and it's no way to go about living in the world. It's living a life where you fail to honor the situations that will cause unpleasant affect in yourself. And resentment is a tricky emotion because it is cumulative. It is always building as if in a pressure cooker. And the more you ignore your boundaries and the more you say yes to everything, the more the resentment builds until it reaches a point where you're probably going to explode in order to finally protect your needs. But the stimulus for that explosion will almost certainly be something completely small because it's been connected to all this story up resentment. So it's basically going to be a giant overreaction, which is almost certainly then going to stimulate shame, embarrassment, and regret in the person who exploded. That's why having a strong sense of boundaries is so important. It stops you from accruing resentment and allows you to off-gas your feelings by being honest, by being clear, by laying down boundaries, such that you never get into that red zone of resentment where you're going to explode. But as I mentioned earlier, on that deeper interpersonal level, boundaries are really about the difference between me and you. About seeing that line that creates a space between us. Some of you might be saying, but AJ, in the past, you've done episodes about non-duality, talking about how everything is one. And I think that that, you know, non-duality is a really interesting thing to think about, and it certainly helped me deal with envy in that episode I did on envy. But just because something is one doesn't mean that it doesn't have distinct parts within the whole. For example, I consider everything on my body to be under the umbrella of me. So it is all one thing. Me. AJ. But that doesn't mean that I go around assuming that I only have one eye, or that my eye and my ear are identical. No, I have two distinct eyes, and I have all these other features, like a mouth and a nose and ears, etc. It is all under the umbrella. It is all one thing from a certain perspective. It is all me. But there are still these distinct component parts that make up me. And the same is true for the human race. We could all be seen as one thing, the human race. But the human race is still made up of these distinct component parts, people. You could see all matter in the universe as made of the same stuff, but that matter is still broken up into (laughs) discrete different clumps, people, places, things, etc. 
So at certain times and from certain perspectives, it is advantageous for me to reflect on how we are all interconnected and we are all one thing and the achievements of any one human can be something that I share in as a human or as something that is, something that exists or something that is alive. Sure, that's really helpful when I'm trying not to feel envy. But when I'm trying to stop myself from going into resentment all the time and from saying yes to things that I don't really want to say yes to and then doing them half-acidly or begrudgingly or treating people badly in the process, when I want to respect that, then it is really important to focus on and honor the spaces between me and other people, the boundaries. Because ultimately... I think the main reason we say yes to things that we don't really want to say yes to is because we think we have to. For example, as I grew up, I often believed that I was responsible for making other people happy and that I created their emotions. Whatever I did around them made them either happy or sad, made them either approve of me or reject me, and therefore I saw myself as being so interconnected with these other people that I didn't have a boundary between us. I thought I had to act a certain way so that they would be happy. I thought that if they were sad, it was my fault. If someone got angry at me, it meant I was bad, etc., etc. Anytime you think that you are completely responsible for the feelings and actions of another person, unless they are literally your legal child, in which case that's sort of a gray area, But I was doing this with generally every single person that I interacted with. And when you are living your life that way, it truly means that you don't fully appreciate that each person is responsible for their own emotions. Each person is responsible for their own behavior. Each person is responsible for their own life, for their own actions, for their own reactions. So a boundary issue is often about the degree to which we over-function or under-function and allow ourselves to be responsible for other people or allow other people to be responsible for ourselves. As you can see, it's kind of a form of childhood. On a psychological level, young children may not be able to fully distinguish themselves from their family or from their parents. So naturally, they are going to feel kind of locked in this emotional interplay with how their parents are acting and reacting and how they react to their parents and their siblings. We all know that feeling of going out for dinner and then one of our parents starts doing something embarrassing like flirting with the service staff. And because we don't have a strong boundary between us and our parents, we feel a lot of shame and embarrassment just for witnessing it, just for being around it. In fact, for me, it goes way beyond just my family. Anybody who I could in any way vaguely be associated with who does something that I deem embarrassing is going to stimulate shame in me because I have such difficulty setting a boundary between me and them and saying, They are responsible for their own behavior. I am not responsible for it. Therefore, I do not need to feel ashamed about it. While true, it's easier said than done. (music) 
Another one of my favorite thinkers is a psychologist from the 20th century named Alfred Adler. He was a contemporary of Freud and Jung, and he has this concept of the separation of tasks. He saw every human as having three important tasks in their lives, and he saw it as extraordinarily important that each person separated their own life tasks from that of anyone else. The three main tasks of life, as Alfred Adler saw them, are work, friendship, and love. I like to think of the tasks as kind of the best practices for a social animal like a human in order to achieve well-being. And where boundaries comes into play is this idea of the separation of tasks. Alfred Adler has this quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, in which he says he can't stop other people from viewing him as their enemy, but he will refuse to view them as his enemy. That's a good example of the separation of tasks. We can't necessarily stop or control how people treat us. We can't stop or control how people feel. We can't stop or control how people react to us. All we can do is focus on our tasks, focus on how we feel, focus on how we act, focus on how we react. So according to Alfred Adler, you would never go over to someone and try to tell them how to live their life or try to tell them what their values should or should not be. It is entirely their task to do this all for themselves. If they come to us and ask for advice or input, of course, we will tell them what we think. But it is all about seeing the boundaries between people and honoring the fact that we each have to fulfill our own tasks. Because if someone else fulfills our tasks for us, it doesn't count in the sense that as these are the best practices for a social animal to achieve well-being, if some other human is achieving our tasks for us, it will not create the sense of well-being that these tasks are intended to create. So built right into Alfred Adler's separation of tasks is a sense of there's no reason to judge another person because those are their tasks and it is my task to focus on my tasks. So it's a boundary issue when I think that it is my place or my right to go around judging other people and telling them or even thinking to myself that what they're doing is wrong. That's a boundary issue. That is their task. The same with giving advice. That's another form of telling people how they should be, of telling people how to fulfill their life's tasks. I know that it's ironic because here I am doing a podcast where I am essentially always giving advice. But I hope that you are listening to the podcast of your own free will, and you are not currently tied to a chair in a damp and uncomfortable unfurnished basement where some maniac is just forcing you to listen to all of my advice. If that is the case, I'm very sorry. Alfred Adler's view of the separation of tasks is very countershaming. It's very empowering. It, it forces us 
to be our own judge, to be our own decider, to choose our own fate. It explicitly says it is our job to choose our own fate. It is our job to be our own authority. And in fact, no one else really can be our authority. No one else can fulfill our lives. We are the only ones who can fulfill our own lives by fulfilling our own important tasks related to the fact that we are a social animal that craves meaning, hence needing work, friendship, and love. I don't think Alfred Adler is suggesting that we should do away with laws and get rid of the government and all become libertarians. I think it's just about how we as people go about our daily lives, where we focus our attention. And the more we can focus our attention on our tasks and recognize and honor the boundary between us and other people, the more we will be able to get along, the less judgment there will be, and the less shame we will all feel because we will recognize that it's up to us to decide what is right and wrong for us, what is good and bad for us, what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, what are our values, what is our reality, essentially. And it's very liberating. When I find myself getting angry at someone or judgmental, if I can stop myself and say, that's their task, and these are my tasks, it really helps me to just give them some space It convinces me that I don't really need to obsess over them. And when I feel like someone is judging me, once again, it's their task. Though, according to Alfred Adler's theory, they should, quote-unquote, not be judging me if they want to properly fulfill their own life's tasks. But even if they are not following Alfred Adler's advice or view at all, that is still their task. It is their task to make that mistake. It is their task to judge me. It is their task to view me as an enemy. It is all their task. And it makes it a lot easier for me to just be like, well, I I hope that that works for them. And I'm going to be over here doing my thing, focusing on my values, focusing on what works for me. And I am going to try not to reciprocate their negativity or judgment or scorn or enemy image by giving them back what they're giving me, because that is the boundary and that is the separation. We are not connected and my reactions are my own. I have to own them. And that is my task. It's just a really fun way to stop yourself from going down this rabbit hole of judgment and even resentment to some degree when you can say, well, that's their task. If I recognize and honor this, it's a lot easier to set my boundaries and to say no when I don't want to fall into resentment. And if the person who I'm saying no to doesn't like it or can't handle it or rejects me, well, that sucks. You know, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to feel a bit of shame. I'm going to feel some unpleasantness. But on an intellectual level, I'm able to say, that's their task. I can't control their task, nor would it be wise to try. That would be a boundary confusion. That would be me thinking that I am them, that they are me, which they are not. Obviously, this gets a lot harder when you're dealing with your actual legal children. But I think if you understand where you're trying to head, as your children get older, you can increasingly try to create more and more boundaries. It's not about doing it at a certain age, per se, or getting it perfectly right. It's just about having this sense of clarity that your your North Star, the place you're trying to help your children get to as they become mature adults, 
is that they are going to separate, be individual, and take on their own life's tasks. That you are going to start off over-functioning as a parent and doing many things for them, and then you will slowly hand each of those functions back to the child as they become an adult, in the hopes that they will eventually be able to completely function on their own, and that they will then be able to parent themselves from then on. It's like a passing off of the baton from the over-functioning parent to a sense of equal peers. I can still be your parent, technically. I can still be wise and a source of comfort and advice and all of that. But we are moving towards this new relationship constantly where we are equal and all of your functions belong to you and all of your tasks are fulfilled by you and my tasks will be fulfilled by me and you will parent yourself. It's almost like parenting, of which I have no experience, is all about slowly moving yourself towards not needing to be a parent anymore. Like, in order to do it really well, you are always edging towards retirement. You are always helping your client, your child, become completely self-sufficient. And if you find that you are not moving in that direction, it's probably because you lack boundaries. It's probably because you are maybe living vicariously through your children, or you are using your children for some kind of emotional regulation, or you are getting some kind of value out of continuing the role of over-functioning guardian. All of these things are using someone else's feelings and achievements and life tasks as if they were your own. And that is just a boundary issue. And the problem isn't some moral, you're a bad parent thing. It's just not an ideal strategy for achieving your sense of well-being and self-actualization and fulfillment based on what Alfred Adler saw as the best practices for a social animal who hungers for meaning. That's just the way a human brain operates. We are social, we need connection, and we need a sense of purpose and meaning. But it works best when we fully understand that there is a boundary in that connection. This is not right or wrong, it's just best practices. This is one strategy that Alfred Adler thinks, and I tend to agree, will lead towards the most well-being. One final angle I want to talk about in terms of boundaries comes from my studying of nonviolent communication. If you listen to the last episode of this podcast in which I interviewed a really great shame thinker and nonviolent communicator, Liev Larshan, she talks about those moments where we feel resentment towards someone else because we think they're taking advantage of us, but really it's a boundary issue because it was us who was unable to properly communicate our boundary. We were the ones who weren't able to say no. But in nonviolent communication, the emphasis is put more on human needs than on boundaries. And when nonviolent communicators talk about human needs, they basically presuppose that every human has some amount of basic needs based on our physiology and based on our psychology, and that all humans more or less have the exact same needs. There's not like a definitive list of 
12 exact human needs. It's a little bit more loose than that. But basically, nonviolent communication wants us to focus on what we want more of. A need that hasn't been met is a way of saying, okay, in the past, some situation occurred in which I felt unpleasant. That means that I have a need that was not fully met. So in the future, I want to create a situation where I can have that need met and based on the tenets of nonviolent communication, I want to honor that at the same time we find a strategy that also meets whatever need it was in the other person that caused them to not meet my need in the first place, that caused them to cross my boundary. And what I love about nonviolent communication's approach here with needs is that a boundary is so much about what I do not want. And a need is about what I do want. So a need is very proactive and forward-looking, whereas a boundary is a little bit more past-focused and a little bit more negative. Obviously, both of these things are important to have a sense of, but I think it's just really powerful and much less shaming when we communicate to someone what we would like more of rather than what we would like less of from them. It's going to sound less critical. It's going to sound less judgmental when we say, hey, in the future, what I'm looking for is for this need of, let's say, privacy to be met. If someone is invading our space, we could say, you're, you're crossing my boundary. I have a boundary where you are not allowed in my space. Or you could say, I have a need for more space. I have a need for more privacy. And I'm hoping that you can help me meet that need. And I will help you meet your need, perhaps for comfort or for connection or whatever it is that is motivating you to come so much into my space. So it's a subtle tweak. But I do think in terms of shame, in terms of communicating clearly and creating an environment where someone really wants to hear our communication, framing a boundary as a need is very palatable. It's something that we can really hear and get excited about trying to help someone with without necessarily feeling judged or criticized, without necessarily going into shame. So that's just a strategic point, that when you're thinking about boundaries, it's very important to see them, to recognize what boundaries are going to lead me to go into resentment. But then when I want to communicate it, it might be most effective to turn my boundary around and figure out how I can communicate which needs I'm actually looking to have met in the future. And of course, one of the key tenets of nonviolent communication is that when you communicate the needs that you would like to be met in the future, you always do so with, and what are your needs? How can we meet my needs and your needs at the same time? That's the key, because it says we're equal. Both of our needs are important. All of our desires and wants matter. And that's just inherently countershaming. It breeds connection. It creates a stronger sense of belonging which will actually fulfill some of our life's tasks, you know, the friendship task and maybe even the love task. Who knows? 